Hello out there in COVID land and welcome to Killer Serials. This is Tony Jones. This is Ryan Parker. We are so glad to have you along with us as we dive into Rectify Season 1, Episode Number 3. And uh, titled Modern Times. This is, yeah, this is where, this is a podcast where Ryan and I uh, talk through serial, awesome serial television, and we look particularly for spiritual, theological, existential types of themes. And we are, for the first time ever, going episode by episode through an entire run of a show, one of the most highly rated shows uh, in recent memory, Rectify. And uh, so we're going to just go into it, assuming you've watched the episode, and away we go. Like Ryan already said, it's called Modern Times. And what would you say, Ryan, that the... the, It's it's funny in some ways because, you know, you're, you're starting to... Um, see how Daniel Daniel missed 19 years of his life, and what he one of the things he missed was the technological innovations. And it is funny, isn't it, watching this show now and looking back on what he thought was, you know, he's he walks into like his little brother's room and he tries to figure out what some of the technology is. Like the kid has an iPod plugged into a external speaker. And he figures out how to turn it on. And now we would look at that and be like, what do you mean? Why doesn't he have a Bluetooth? Who, who has iPods anymore? You know. So it's even in the years since the show came out, it's funny how much technology has advanced. Yeah, Tony, I think it's, it's continuing this theme of time that we've touched on over the last two episodes. But one of the things that I found interesting is that I believe that scene takes place in Jared's bedroom immediately after John goes to visit Mr. Gaines played by the brilliant Hal Holbrook um, to talk about the case, right? Because uh, Mr. Gaines was Daniel's defender back uh, in the initial trial. And he, he tells John, uh, don't let technology fool you. And, John says, and to thinking what? And he says, to thinking that we're in modern times, which is, you know, when they say the name of the episode title in the episode. Um, so I think it's really interesting that uh, they're, they're really leaning in, continuing to lean into this. Um, he's also, Daniel's also making up for lost time because after he's kind of, you know, befuddled by these things in Jared's room, he goes up to the attic and he unlocks this uh, case that has all of his old stuff in it, which is a cassette Walkman, an old Sega Genesis. And then this is, you know, for the next, his his scenes for the next little bit of the show are of him putting on his Walkman, dancing around to music, Stone Temple Pilots and um, things like that, and kind of making up or at least embodying teenage Daniel, because back in Jared's, uh, bedroom, he had found a folder uh, that Jared had kept all the press clippings, or somebody in the family, right, had kept all the press clippings about his trial, and there was a picture of him as a long-haired teenager. You could kind of see him as a younger man, what his life may have been like, right, playing video games, listening to punk music, whatever. 
Well, the reason Rutherford, yeah, the reason Rutherford Gaines says that to him, like basically don't trust technology, is the whole reason Daniel's out is because of technology. That's right. I mean, this has been such a game changer in the criminal justice system. That's right. Is the uh, ability to basically fingerprint DNA on something. And it's also, uh, that's, a, that's an ominous kind of warning because as the young defender from up north, he's gotten this client off basically because of DNA evidence and because of the advancement in technology. And now this old retired defender is saying, be careful, don't trust the technology. And you want, you wonder, do you want to write him off just because he's an old, out of date, con- traditional type of guy? He's, he's kind of basically conservative, small C conservative in his um, beliefs about, about how the legal system works. Because it's not unlike the conversation that happens at the diner. It's the young, that same young attorney, John Stern, is at the diner at the counter across from, or I mean, sitting next to uh, the state senator, Roland Folks. And he basically, the state senator gives the same message, which is, I don't really care whose, you know, whose sperm was on her based on the DNA. No, he says, I don't I care where the, did this, he says, the, I don't care where the sperm the kid, landed. And John says, I don't, I'm not concerned about location. I'm concerned about who, whose it is, right? Whose it is. And of course, the senator, the state senator, who it, in some ways it, it seems like he made his career off winning this case and sending this kid to death row, he doesn't trust the technology either. So there is a little bit of a clash of civilizations happening where John Stern represents a young northern uh, more kind of a pro science mentality and these two older southern gentlemen on on either side of the case neither of them seems to really trust the technology so what do you make of that yeah i am i i, I want to i think what you're saying is is right on point i thought that was a a neat um and just a way to kind of open up the story, a nod to civil rights, a nod to a, a deeper past when, you know, the state senator basically tells John, you know, you quit coming down here from the north and stirring up trouble. But, Tony, I want to take yeah, this. And, and, it's, it shouldn't, and it shouldn't be lost on us that they're sitting at a lunch counter. That's right. Right. That's, it's it's all uh, so uh, intelligently staged and 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 written. I want to take this uh, in just a slightly different direction, although not completely unrelated, and it's going to be completely in your wheelhouse. And I wonder if you thought about this after this episode. The Mr. Gaines comments to John contain, uh, he repeats this phrase, everybody has a part to play. I think, and he talks about modern times, and he talks about technology and all, all, the, all these kinds of things. I think his character, and it'll be interesting to see if he plays a factor in episodes moving forward. But that conversation with John, I think, opened up this very small story about uh, um, rape and murder and possible wrongful conviction and wrongful attainment. And 
threw it on a cosmic kind of grand mythological scale. And I wonder if, if that character hasn't made us think about uh, this story and the whole span of human history. And, and I'm thinking about things like scapegoating. Uh, I'm thinking about things like, uh, you know, capital punishment, all these kinds of things, because uh, there's a quote here, and I think we should play it, uh, a line of dialogue here from Mr. Gaines to John about this very thing. Boy, it was just a baby when they put him in. 18. What people never understand, what, what gets lost in all this revisiting is the tenor of the town back then. I can only imagine. No, you can't, Mr. Stern. Not unless you bore witness to it. Not unless you were knee-deep in it. Smelled it. Smelled what, sir? Some of your people know, the older ones. Humans don't change that much in 50 years, or a hundred, or a thousand. It's the laws that change, the rules of civilization. We just repeat ourselves. Everybody with a part to play. So, Tony, what do you make of that? Do you, do you feel that that's kind of an accurate read on this in, in terms of a more cosmic, maybe the wrong word, but a more mythological scale that we potentially can look? We don't know where the series is going to go. Right. But at least for the moment, with this nod to uh, a history of violence in the South, um, I think more than a nod to uh, this understanding of the way humans have functioned throughout history, um, I, I think it allows us the opportunity to, to do that. You know, uh, you make an interesting point. I do think that there's a little bit of philosophy thrown in there when Rutherford Gaines, he's sitting in this chair, you know, an old, distinguished, retired defense lawyer and the young uh, Yankee Jewish guy comes in, you know, a defense lawyer comes in, basically says, teach me, you know, how to win this case. And this is where this quote we just heard came from. You know, it's interesting. It does make me remember, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with my brother years ago, who is an attorney, and he specializes in federal level appellate work. So basically, he is working for clients, some of them are very high profile, who've already been convicted of very serious felonies. Almost all of his clients are in prison, and he is trying to get federal courts of appeals to overturn them. And some of these guys, he'll even admit, are really dirty characters. They're not very sympathetic characters. And I asked him years ago... I was like, how can you defend these guys? Like, why aren't you a prosecutor trying to put the bad guys away instead of getting the bad guys off? And he talked about, you know, everybody has a constitutional right to an adequate defense. But basically, he ended by saying, look, you got to pick a side. When you're a lawyer, ultimately, you pick a side. You're either defending, you know, if you're in criminal law, you're either defending criminals or you're prosecuting criminals. And it's more that it's in the interest of playing the chess game than necessarily saying, I'm out to put bad guys away. So that's what I heard when I, when I heard this old retired Rutherford Gaines defense lawyer basically saying, 
to Luke Kirby, hey, uh, sorry, Luke Kirby's character, John Stern, hey, uh, <laughs> we all play our parts. You're just playing a role. And everything's kind of preordained, which makes me think, you know, you're asking about a bigger issue behind this. It makes me think of two things. One is it makes me think of the theological concept of predestination, where everything's already scheduled out. Everything's already planned. We're just playing a part. We, we don't know where it's going, but there is some higher cosmic force who does. It also makes me think of Marxism and the idea, uh, part of the idea of Marxism, that we're all trapped in these structures and they dictate the ways that we live. We, we have a lot less agency or a lot less free will than our minds trick us into believing we have. And that, it seems like in some ways, Rutherford Gaines' line right there is an old, tired, cynical take on somebody who, you know, fought like hell on a case, lost it, and he seems like kind of a defeated man. He's kind of shrugging his shoulders and saying, look, we're just playing a part. Like, you don't really, you're not really making a difference. You're just playing a role. Yeah, I don't, I think that's a really good read on it, too. I think maybe, uh, I think that's an ingredient in that, in that dish, so to speak. Because he also talks about, he also takes it on this biological level too, right? Where he says, I'm just not convinced that we all didn't come from apes. You know, then that just, or monkeys or whatever he says, which taps into a whole other thing being set in the South and and evolution and kind of religious, like creationism and all this kind of stuff. But I was also thinking about, the, the episode opens with uh, an interview, a press interview, uh, a, a journalist interviewing a woman about uh, actually Hannah's mother, That's right. right. About Daniel being released. And obviously this is a woman who has a terrible amount of grief and, and everything. But you, you also think about the community, right? When the state Senator talks about stirring things up, uh, Mr. Gaines talks about everybody having a part to play there. It'll be interesting to see what else is going on in that town, because it sounds like there's a, bit of tension of like family tension as all small towns have. But I also think that Daniel may be functioning in his imprisonment may have functioned on a deeper level than even that, right? Where he, his incarceration represented something that maybe he was a scapegoat for, and everybody may have their own different needs to see him in prison. Right. I already, I mean, I think the show is already revealing that the state Senator has something at stake. Um, It'll be interesting to see if that, trickles out in any other way. Yeah, uh, we're, we're starting to see the pressure from the town closing in on this family and watching the ways that they react to it. Jared is getting texts on his phone that are, that are well, extremely the, yeah, violent and vile and exactly right. offensive. Yep. Um, it's interesting. We There's a new character introduced and it's a young woman named Claire who seems to be either close friends or a love interest of Jared. And she convinces him he's got to talk to somebody about these texts. He goes to talk to John Stern, the young uh, defense attorney, who in turn tells Amantha about them. Amantha is dejected by it, but kind of blows it off. She doesn't see the harm in it. And they're having this conversation. This is 
Yeah, well, she, she lived, lived through it herself. She said you should have heard the death threats. She lived through it yeah. as a teenager. But yeah. what I'd like you to comment on a little bit is the county line bar, the, the redneck bar we had one. there at, where we Amantha's out of place. Yeah. And John Stern is really out of place. Yep. And then they have, uh, you know, Hannah's family comes back into the picture there. Yeah, Tony, I think I'm, I'm really glad you brought it up because I don't want to make too much out of it. But growing up in the South, I mean, there's a lot of, I remember the first time I watched the pilot episode, I thought, my God, everybody in this is from the South. I mean, they just nail everything, the feel of it, the county line. You can, uh, what, what does she say about, you got to go to the next county over to buy a beer or whatever. Like all these small Southern towns and counties have all these ludicrous liquor restrictions. What and she all that said kind of stuff. was in my count, in my County, you can, execute somebody but you've got to go to the next county to get a drink that's right you know and and so they go to this bar called appropriately called the county line and they the feel of that place all eyes are on them right for multiple reasons everybody probably knows who she is um they look out of place in their nicer clothes and like you said hannah's brother shows up and he's a kind of a spectral figure in this place and it really throws her for a loop, uh, and and she has to get out of there, right? She's on her way to getting drunk, and she says she tells yeah, John to come. I mean, speaking of speaking of Southern literature, he did have a little bit the Boo Radley kind of aura. Yeah. I thought standing over against the wall, it was really kind of creepy, thin, disheveled, very creepy, almost a ghost, like a specter. Yeah, and I, I yeah, I would love maybe this is what you're going to reflect on, but let's listen to what she says after they leave the bar about her, you know, her interactions with Hannah's brother after Hannah was killed and Daniel went to prison. Well? It's Hannah's brother, all grown up. What? Little Bobby Dean. I watched Daniel go to death row. He buried his sister and then we went to algebra class together. You're just, too young and too in the middle of it to know how crazy it all was at the time. You know he's messed up. (laughs) John, I need you to take me somewhere. So there you just hear, Ryan, that, you know, they they sat next to each other in class, in school, even though, you know, their families were, again, to sorry to throw another southern literary illusion at you but this their families were like the hatfields and the mccoys in this town yeah and tony i think it's really interesting especially with a southern setting to think about um integration right to think about all of these um ideas when people uh, are, are realities right where people who are opposed to each other or society has pitted against each other or life have have put in conflict uh being so close to each other in life. You know, one of the other things that I'm interested in, in that scene where she goes out to the, the scene of the crime in the way that the story uh, uh, of the events of that murder of that rape and murder began to function as like a cautionary tale in the community and almost a horror story or a rite of passage where uh, it's kind of like she was saying, you kind of everybody, something that everybody did, but it's also a story that you, that you could imagine not being too far 
of a stretch to say it was also functioning to kind of dictate social norms, especially around sex and what you can do and, and can't do or where you can do it and all that kind of, kind of stuff. Did you, did you kind of get that as well? Yeah, Ryan, I, that's, that's kind of the last big element I wanted to discuss with you is what it tells us about Amantha and even about John Stern, that they would end up having sex in the car feet away from this grisly murder site. You know, a site that wa- that is seen by everybody in the town as a morbid curiosity that, you know, she tells us kids would go out into cars and be told basically the horror, the ghost story of, of you know, of what happened between Hannah and Daniel. And then kids would come and bang on the car windows right at the climax of the story. And you and I remember all sorts of, you know, episodes like horror, uh, ghost stories like this up at church camp when we were growing up. And this seems very much like something that, uh, you know, high school kids would do. In some ways, what I wonder is if we don't see that Amantha is psychologically stunted or frozen in time. So she's acting like a high school kid. She ends up coming on to her love interest, John Stern, and ends up having sex with him in his car uh, overlooking the murder scene, uh, murder site. It's, it, it, shows to, it shows to me how n- she is not self, self-realized. She is very immature. It's so creepy that they would do it. And I, I, I found it very troubling that, you know, they're telling the story. They're sitting on the rock after standing in the water. Yeah. Then she grabs John Stern's hand, slides it up her inner thigh. And the next thing you see is they are uh, having sex in the car. It's it's troubling. It, it's so in. It's so wildly inappropriate that they do it. Yeah. That you just have to think like, what is going through their minds that they would do it at this spot? Well, I hadn't quite thought about it that way, and I think you make a good point. And it's also kind of a continuation of what we talked about last week about how time stops for everybody in that family um, with with his imprisonment, and that there is sort of this delayed development, you know, and even in this episode, she's going out to look for an apartment. It's something that, you know, she would have done years ago. Now there is this implication that she's moving back home, but it's almost like, yeah, that, she that, says that she says she's moving back like, home or that she's been, wondering. I should say like that she's yeah. been away and, you know, yeah. you wonder like what that life was like and what, when, if, if, and when we'll get to, to peek into that, you know, she's a, she's an interesting character an incredible performance. Um, as well in this episode, I wonder if there's one other thing that I wanted to bring up before we close out this week. And because I just, I still think we have to do it because I think it's uh, what life is like for Daniel on the outside, reacclimating psychologically, spiritually, physically to his new reality. You know, and I, I think it's really interesting in that first few minutes of the episode where he's in his room and Amantha, is kind of walking on eggshells right around the house. And she wants to invite him to go out and kind of spend the day together. And what she suggests to him is uh, that they go to this place called the refuge, which is basically like a small town zoo for lack of a better word. And she tells him, I hear that they have a baboon. And this is meanwhile, he's in his room 
in various stages of undress, flopping on the bed, on his beanbag chair. Uh, at one point, he's naked. He's busted open a pillow, and he's kind of rolling in feathers. And I think and it'll be hard to beat this delivery uh, in the entire series, but when she says, can I come in, what does he say? Better not. Like, I think yeah. the best delivery, yeah. just right. deadpan. He's naked, covered in feathers. But I really find it interesting that he's trying. He moves around the house so quietly. Uh, he when he goes upstairs in the attic, he's he's playing. He he's at play basically this entire episode, and you know just acclimating to his new space. I just I thought that was an interesting touch. Um, I, I know that much of the attention was on other characters, but you know he, he's yeah he has been an animal in a cage for most of his adult life. And then here she comes and says, Hey, let's go look at some animals in cages. I mean, maybe not the best idea for a day out. Totally tone deaf, totally yeah. tone deaf. Meanwhile, he's behind the door. Like you say, flopping on the, on the bed and the beanbag and ripping open the pillow and, and the feathers are floating down all over him. It's like, he's trying to have all sorts of sensory experiences that he, so good. That he missed yeah. when he was in prison. Yeah. The you feel know, of a bed, um, right? Uh, to feel yeah. th- feel things against his skin, um, to know what it's like to bounce on a bed. Which again, and then he goes up, and we find out later when Amantha is explaining it to John Stern. The clo- yeah, he's listening to his old tapes, including one that was like a loving mixtape that was given to him by Hannah. Yeah, exactly. The, the 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 girl who was subsequently murdered. And we find out from what Amantha says to John Stern, the clothes he's putting on are his father's clothes. So he puts on a that's pair right. of chest waders and a camo jacket. Um, and that's another interesting aspect. Who, who we learn, um, Tony, is he died while Daniel's in prison of a heart attack. Yeah, that's right. So that's the one flashback to prison that we see in this episode is he's just gotten the news that his father died. He delivers that news, you know, through the the grate to the guy in the next cell, and then he just sits there, stone cold silent, uh, almost emotionless, about the death of his father, which he's missed because he's been in prison. And it's all, you know, I guess I'm continuing to wonder, and we'll watch this play out if both Amantha and Daniel, and maybe even Janet, the mom are all frozen in time from 19 years ago and they've never really moved on and the one person who wasn't around for that is jared who is i'm guessing is daniel and amantha's full brother who was born before the father died of the heart attack you know we're we're, it's kind of jigsaw puzzle putting these chronological pieces together Though he does have a different last name, so maybe he, either he was adopted by Tawny Talbert. No, not Ted. Tawny, but the dad, Ted, Ted Sr. Ted, Ted Sr. Or he is a half-brother to Daniel and Amantha. One more interesting interaction we should just touch on before we go, and that is when Ted Jr. leaves town, and then Tawny That's right. brings over some monkey bread speaking of baboons or whatever you know there and drops it off hoping to see daniel and amantha kind of gets in the way of that and doesn't let it happen because she knows daniel's in the attic dancing and listening to music so yeah and also just quickly because it's a very small thing but last week's episode ended with this clear 
part of the ending of last week's episode. And also just a quick aside, uh, again, kind of a last three or four minutes of no dialogue, right, this week and ending on just this montage yeah. of these major characters. But last week we noticed and talked about this division or this tension between Tawny and Teddy Jr. And it is on full display. And it's such an interesting thing to see play out and, and I think will be uh, in the episodes ahead where Tawny, you know, she's in the bathroom and Teddy's leaving for a work trip and she doesn't even come out of the bathroom to say goodbye to him. And she turns on her hairdryer to cut him off, you know, and he just leaves. So I just right. really, really curious there about what's, what's going to be going on between the two of them or why she's feeling this way around her husband. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, I, I think what we're seeing is a lot of awkward and somewhat troubled relationships, right? We see it there. Just a few. You mentioned Just between Tawny and yeah. Tony and Ted Jr. You see uh, between Amantha and Daniel because Amantha's trying to get him out of the house and, you know, he's not really responsive to what she wants. Between Amantha and John Stern, this weird romantic relationship. And then just, you know, we just go down the line. So interesting stuff. And I like you, I, I really like this episode. I, I just really like the way this is uh, progressing of uh, this series. And I really hope that uh, if you're watching along with us, that you'll reach out to us and let us know. Even if you're not listening, you know, if you're listening to this down the road as you watch the series, uh, we would love to hear from you on social media or through our, you know, comments on the podcast venues. Give us a rating and subscribe and look back through our back catalog if you're looking for other shows to watch we've gone through a lot of different seasons of different shows yeah we've and got I some good stuff in there into yeah if you're interested in thoughtful television shows with great writing great acting and spiritual themes uh i think we've got in our back catalog of podcast episodes some stuff that you might really enjoy yeah. well thanks everybody for listening to killer serials and we will talk to you next week <laughs>